Well, to begin today, I, I want to let you know that you all know how the jokes begin, right? You've heard these jokes before, and they go like this. One day, you die and go to heaven. Excellent. Kind of assumed that we're all going to heaven in these jokes. I got, I got issues with these jokes, but that's okay. One day, you die and go to heaven. You come up to the pearly gates, and who is there guarding them? St. Peter, you guys aren't even Catholic and you said St. Peter. I'm proud of you. Very good, very good. You're right. St. Peter is there. These jokes are common in our day. In fact, I looked many of them up because I wanted to open with one. And they're all so bad that I chose against it. All right? These jokes are common, but surprisingly enough, they're really not all that new. In fact, around the year of 1514, early 16th century, there was a piece of writing going around Europe at the time. It was a script, and it was full of satire. In fact, it was pretty scathing in its satire. It was a short piece, and it was like a short play. And in this script, which was attributed to Desiderius Erasmus, there was a man by the name of Pope Julius II, and he meets who? St. Peter at the... Pearly Gates, you guessed it. It's almost like you've heard that before. All right, so here's the setup on Pope Julius. You need to know this. He was born 1443, and he died in 1513, which is just a few short years before the Protestant Reformation kicked off, okay? He died at the age of 69, and when he died, this piece came out, and uh, he meets St. Peter at the Pearly Gates. Now, Pope Julius II was known for being incredibly volatile and militant. You can see this is the, oh, the picture that was drawn in this script. And so we're going to zoom in just a little. And you're going to see Pope Julius here who is circled in red. There it is. You see in his hand he's got a key. You guys see that? He's got a big long key in his right hand. All right. And then up in the upper left of the screen in the yellow you have St. Peter who he's the gatekeeper. We know how the jokes go. All right. So St. Julius comes up or Pope Julius comes up to St. Peter and Julius was a very militant pope. Instead of leading the Roman Catholic Church by way of shepherding it and providing spiritual guidance, he sought to conquer more and more territory around Europe. This was very common at this time in history. He was known for his bloody sword, for his desire for power, and his building up of the church structures, the edifices in Rome. Okay? He was known also for making the church extravagantly wealthy. This is Pope Julius. And so, here comes this comical piece, meant to make a point. So here's the script. In the script, this is a summary. Pope Julius comes banging on the gates of heaven, banging on the gates, and he's banging on them in frustration because his key doesn't work. He can't get in. He's tried time and time again, and he can't get in to heaven. And after hearing all the ruckus outside the front door, St. Peter decides to show up and see what all this fuss is about. When St. Peter comes to hear this racket, Julius shows him the key, and he's frustrated. This is the key of his crown, the key of his power. It was decorated with precious jewels and gems. And then Peter looks at it, and he says, quote, it doesn't look like the key Christ gave me. You get it. 
how should I know this crown which no barbarian tyrant ever even dared to wear? As for the gems and the jewels on this key, I trample them under my feet. Julius, obviously enraged and frustrated that Peter won't let him in, he tries impressing Peter with his accomplishments, with his military victories, his titles, his family heritage, and his papal authority. I, if anyone, has the right to go in, he thinks. And if you can imagine, uh, after many lines back and forth, Peter certainly gets the best of Julius in this argument. I actually invite you to read this. In, I think in Latin it's called Julius Exclusus, which is the exclusion of Julius. So you can look that up online. It's very fascinating. But he's frustrated because none of the keys work. After lines back and forth, this little script ends with this post. This is the postscript, okay? It says, Julius, who was refused admittance, says that when more of his soldiers arrive, he will knock down the gates of heaven. He will find his way in. Okay? Now, why do I bring up this weird historical story? Well, it's this. It is possible for people to think that they are in when, in fact, they are not. It is possible. The question for us, if we can be honest enough to assess ourselves, is, is it possible even you and I might be deceived about our entrance into the kingdom of heaven? This is the question that the text makes us wrestle with today. You know, one of the things about preaching through the Bible is it holds your feet to the fire, and you can't just uh, skip the portions that are hard. Kind of wish I could skip the hard portion this morning. However, this is God's word, and we believe that every single part of it is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting. Right? We believe that, church? And so we preach even this text. So please open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 21, and please stand with me when you do. Matthew 7, 21. As you do that, today's passage of Scripture is perhaps one of the most piercing warnings in all of Jesus' teaching. We would be very wise to take it very seriously, and that's what we're going to do this morning. It comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, found in chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew. As if the content in this sermon wasn't hard enough already, right? Gouging out our own eye, lopping off your hand, blessing those who curse you, turning the other cheek, all of these incredibly difficult passages. Jesus turns up the heat even more at the end of this sermon. We were told earlier in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Pastor Ken preached on this, the way of the kingdom of Jesus is hard. It is difficult. It has a narrow gate, and those who find it, are they many? No, they're few. We were then warned that there are even false prophets who seek to devour the faithful. Pastor Chris mentioned that last week. But now, Jesus sternly warns every listener, you and me alike, to assess our own lives and see if we are, in fact, his own. If we do belong to Jesus. Now, the last disclaimer I want to give is this. If when we read these three short verses, if your eyes, your mind's eye is focused on how this applies to other people, <laughs> we've all done it, right? Confession moment. 
if your focus is there, you are going to completely miss the warning. And that is not Jesus' intent. Jesus wants us to look at ourselves. So don't think about how this applies to that person or those people or that group of people. This is about you and the Lord today. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Jesus says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. This is what they call a uh, feel-good message, everybody. It's going to fill you with warm fuzzies today. This is not one of those messages. What we're going to do this morning is we are going to first take a look at two types of frauds this morning, two types of posers. Then we're going to look at what defines faithful followers of Jesus, and then lastly, we are going to assess ourselves in light of this passage. So I've entitled this message, Faithful or Fraud? Let's begin by looking at the two types of frauds that we see here. The first one is called the professor, and I do not mean by this one who teaches things. I mean the person who professes, the person who says these things are true about them. You guys know people who professed things to be true in their life? This is what we're talking about. This is the professor. Look with me at verse 21. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The first thing that we need to realize is that Scripture does teach us that we must confess Christ as Lord. There is nothing wrong with saying, Lord, Lord. Jesus is our Lord, amen? Amen. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is true. Salvation comes to everyone who truly confesses Jesus as Lord and believe in his atoning death and in his triumphant resurrection. This is the gospel. This is the gospel 101. So, what's the problem? Well, apparently, mere profession of this fact of Jesus as Lord doesn't guarantee that you have the right key. It doesn't guarantee that you actually know him. On the day of judgment, there will be many people who profess, Lord, Lord, and they believe themselves to be earnest, don't they? Lord, Lord, but not all who profess Christ actually possess Christ. It doesn't mean they have him and they're united with him just because they say Jesus is Lord. You guys know Christianity typically in our country has been very socially acceptable. It's quite easy for people to act Christian 
to talk Christian and for that to be a popular thing. Yes, the tides are turning, but the point here that I see relevant for us is that cultural Christianity doesn't cut it. To merely profess Jesus as Lord misses the mark somehow. Just acknowledging the facts is not enough. You guys might have remembered the phrase, talking the talk, right? Does talking the talk matter much if you don't back it up, if you don't walk the walk? To illustrate this point, I'd like to uh, let you know that in college, one of my summer jobs was working on a landscape crew. And before I got into mowing, you know, lawn mowing, lawn maintenance, uh, I was interviewed for the position. And they asked me, do you have experience mowing lawns? And I said, absolutely, I have experience mowing lawns. Thank you very much. And I did. I had worked on my friend's blueberry farm in my junior and senior year. I spent most of the summers mowing the edges of fields, mowing the different properties they owned, mowing around migrant camps. I did a lot of lawn mowing, okay? So I truthfully told them, yes, I have lots of mowing experience. And they were like, wow, wonderful, somebody we don't have to train. So we get to our first lawn, and it uh, happens to be in the Cascade area, if you know what I mean, okay? <laughs> Very nice area. My uh, supervisor was with me, the guy who hired me, and he was like, all right, I'll take the backyard, you can take the front yard. And I'm like, all right, sounds good. Drove off the thing, this is, you know, zero turn, this is what I'm doing. So I hop onto that lawn, and I take my perimeter passes around there, and I just keep going like a clock, baby. Round and round and round. If you don't know, that's not what you do in professional lawn care. Does anybody know that that's a bad idea? Number one, I'm making the lawn look terrible. Number two, I'm blowing all of the clippings to the very center of the lawn where it looks like a hayfield when I'm done, okay? Because I knew how to mow a lawn. So he runs up to me once he sees what I'm doing, and he's like, what is wrong with you? What are you doing? And I'm like, I'm mowing, bro. I've got this. Don't worry. And he goes, don't you know how to stripe a lawn? I said, what's that? I had to learn that there is, everybody who has mowed professionally before, you know, there is a right way to mow a lawn. And when you're done, it looks pristine. When I was done with this front lawn, it did not look pristine. I might have professed with my mouth that I knew what I was doing. I was very confident about it. In fact, I thought I knew what I was doing. But I didn't. I talked a good game, but at that point in my life, I was clearly not a professional landscaper. I professed with my mouth that I knew what I was doing, but my supervisor knew the difference. And boy, did he know the difference. Similarly, friends, professing to know Jesus doesn't mean you really know him. It is possible that people who have attended church their entire lives even professed Jesus as Lord, will find themselves outside of the kingdom of heaven one day. This is a scary passage. This is what it means to profess Jesus as Lord. So that's the first kind of fraud, the professor. Now let's look at the second type of fraud. This is the impressor. And yes, that is a silhouette of me flexing. No, it's not. <laughs> Very much not. This is the impressor. We're going to come to the second half of verse 21 in just a moment, but before we do that, let's look at verse 22. Verse 22 says this, on that day, a couple people will say to me, is that what it says? No, many 
people. This is not one person. This is not a very small number. Many people will say this to me. They will say, Lord, Lord. They don't even just say Lord once. They say it twice, right? This is emphatic. Lord, Lord. And then notice the repetition here. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works? You guessed it. In your name? Look at all that we've done to you, all that we've done for you. Don't you see how we've prophesied, how we've taught your word? We did it with authority, too. We made sure to be right about it. Okay, we prophesied. We cast out demons in your name. We had spiritual power over the principalities of the world. Okay, you saw that we did this, right, Jesus? Didn't you see all of the mighty works that we've done in your name? We're kind of a big deal. I mean... Don't you sense that? we got to be in, right? If anyone's going to be in, it would be mighty miracle workers like us. Not so fast. Just as it is possible to claim Jesus as Lord, the professor, and find yourself outside the kingdom, it's also possible to do many mighty works in the name of Jesus and find the gate still locked. Why is this? We don't like this, I know, but why is this? Miraculous deeds are not airtight proofs of genuine discipleship. How do we know this? Well, they never have been. Later on in Matthew, in chapter 24, Jesus states in Matthew 24, 24, that one day false Christs and false prophets will arrive, and what are they going to do? They're going to perform great signs and wonders. Look backwards in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. What did Pharaoh's magicians do? They performed many mighty wonders, didn't they? So this power somehow in God's sovereign design is sometimes given to people who don't know the Lord. That's hard for us to understand, but we see that in Scripture. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, Paul talks about in that day, the day of judgment, or uh, in that day, that future day, the lawless one is going to come and have all power in doing what? False signs and wonders. That is going to happen. And so we can't simply bank on the miraculous as proof of our own discipleship. If you recall, even Judas, along with the 12 apostles, and, or the other 11, and along with the 72, were sent out to perform mighty deeds and to cast out demons. But Judas betrayed our Lord. The impressors seem to be very, very active in what appears to be religious activity, right? It's the work of God. We're all about the work. But they are missing something huge. Jesus says directly that their problem is that they neither know the Lord nor obey his teachings. One commentator writes that these people had been very active in the service of God. They had done everything but... The Lord's will. And this is the critical thing. To be active in religious affairs is no substitute for actually obeying God. You see, Jesus isn't interested in our mental ascent of his existence. Even the demons believe and tremble. An acknowledgement of the facts is not enough. There are many people who have very inflated egos 
and intellectually, in their head, in their mind, they know all the tenets of Christianity. They know how best to explain the Trinity. They know about God's omnipresence and his omnipotence and his sovereignty and all of these amazing theological things. They might know it all, but it is possible that their hearts are far from God. They don't cherish him. They don't delight in him. They don't have a relationship with him. They talk the talk, but you'd never be able to tell them from the way they treat other people. Similarly, Jesus isn't even impressed with our mighty deeds, our religious activities. How do we know this? Well, how does Jesus respond to these impressive miracle workers? Well, look at verse 23. After they had come up to him, pleading their case, verse 23 says, Jesus, and then will I declare to them, I never knew Those four words are perhaps the most terrifying words in all of the scripture. I never knew you. Get away from me. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I can't imagine more fearful and terrifying words than to have Jesus on the day of judgment look at me radiant in splendor and beauty and majesty and might and power, and authority, look at me and say, I don't know who you are. Can you imagine that? Again, this sermon isn't for other people. This sermon is for each one of us. Those are haunting words. But really, this is the problem with both the professor and the impressor. Neither group find themselves known by Jesus. They don't know him. And so we must ask then, okay, this is not sounding good. Who then finds their way through the narrow gate? Who traverses this hard way of the kingdom? Who is the one who makes it into the kingdom of heaven? Who are those who are considered faithful? We don't want to be frauds, do we? We want to be faithful. So who gets in? Well, it's those who truly know God and... Therefore, they do his will. Let's talk for a moment about the faithful and what it means to be known by Jesus. This is the first thing we see in verse 23. The professors and the impressors didn't know Jesus, or rather, Jesus didn't know them. So what can we learn about what being faithful looks like? Well, obviously, this will goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, Jesus isn't caught unaware of these people's existence. Like, oh, surprise, I didn't know you were in existence. I didn't know you. That's not, what, that's not what's going on. Clearly, Jesus, who is sovereign over all, upholding every molecule of the universe by the word of his power, clearly he knows everyone who's ever been created, for he created them. So what is meant by this idea of knowing God? Well, simply put, to be known by Jesus means that there exists an established relationship with him. Really, you guys know this, Christianity for decades and decades and decades has emphasized what? Christianity is a relationship with Jesus, right? We like to say it's not a religion, but it's a relationship. And that gets overused, but there is truth there. Christianity is all about a relationship with Jesus, 
And so if you're professing to know him, you're professing to do things in his name, yet you don't know him, you are not a Christian. This language is all throughout the Bible, right? Someone could say that they know me, right? That they could know all the facts about me. They could know that I'm 6'1", that I have celiac disease, that I have brown eyes, that I have a ridiculously goofy face. They could know lots of things about me, right? But if they've never spent time with me, if there is no relationship established, if there's no love, no trust, no mutual service in building up, there's no relationship. And really, they're just a poser. True Christianity is all about relationship. It's about us finding our identity no longer in ourselves, but finding our identity hidden in Christ and having him in us. Think of John 15, the vine and the branches, abiding with Christ. That's a true relationship. What happens if the branch gets cut off? It dies. It's not abiding with the vine anymore. We get that idea. This is finding ourselves unified with Jesus. You know him. He knows you. As I said, this is the language throughout the Bible. To look at the prophets, God said to the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 1, verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I what? I knew you. You hear that relational language? I knew you, Jeremiah. Nahum the prophet says that God knows those who take refuge in him. There's the knowing, the relationship there. (laughs) In Galatians 4, verse 9, Paul speaks of the Gentiles, and he talks about them as people who at one point didn't know God, but now they do know God. Then he says, or rather, they are known by God. You see how that language is very, very similar to what we have here? They are known by God. Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians 8, 3, that if anyone loves God, he is known by God. In 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are his. In Jesus' own words in John 10.14, he says, I know my own, and my own know me. He knows his sheep, and his sheep come calling when they hear the shepherd's voice. The problem with both the professor and the impressor is this. On the day of judgment, they are exposed by Almighty God. They have proved this by ultimately failing to do the will of the Father. And how do we know this? Now we're coming back to verse 21. Look with me there. Verse 21 begins by saying, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So who does? But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's the person who makes it in. And I know Right when I say that, doing the will of the Father, that a few of you, you get your hackles kind of go up a little bit. You're like, wait a minute. That sounds an awful lot like salvation by works. And we believe salvation is by grace alone, not by the deeds you do. So how can you say that those who actually do the Father's will are the ones who are saved? Well, let's be crystal clear because the scriptures are crystal clear. We are saved by grace alone. Amen? There is some good news in this message, everybody. You should amen that even better. That's the good news. We're saved by grace alone. This means it's God's kind and generous gift to us. That's how we're saved. It's not because of our own works, our own merit, our own achievements. All of that is like filthy rags. The Lord 
has graciously reached out to us to save us. And our salvation comes to us through faith alone. We don't have to do the right steps. We have to simply believe God is who he says he is and that he sent his son in the world, in the flesh, perfect in every way to bear all of our sin because we are the ones who screwed it up. When we believe that and we trust that he forgave us upon the cross and that he rose again on the third day to forgive us of our sins, that's called faith. That's called belief. That's trust. That's what saves us. And our salvation is absolutely in Christ alone. There is no other name on earth, heaven or earth, given among men by which we must be saved. It is the name of Jesus alone that forgives us of our sins and gives us new life. Amen, church? That is the gospel, and that is clear. And Jesus is equally clear here. The person who really knows God actually delights to do the will of the Father. That's how you sort out the posers from the faithful. The people who really love God delight to do his will. This is all throughout the New Testament. James is probably the best example of this. In James 1.22, he says, ah, beware. Don't just be hearers of the word and so deceive yourselves. Hear it and do it. That's the whole point. And in James chapter 2, he goes on at length, and this confuses a lot of people, but he goes on at length to talk about, okay, yeah, that professing kind of faith, that faith doesn't save you because that's not a real faith. Real faith is transforming. It makes us new creations in Christ, and it enables us by the Spirit of God to delight in the law of God. It is not the root of our salvation. Our good works, doing the Father's will, that's the fruit of our salvation. If that's not present in your life, what does that mean? It means you might not know him. That's why this is in our Bibles today. This is a real challenge. So we might ask, what is the Father's will? Because we want to be people who delight to do that, right? What is the Father's will? Well, good news. Jesus has just been making it clear for the last three chapters in the Sermon on the Mount. He has told us what living like the Father's children in this world actually look like. Read over the Beatitudes again. Those are so unbelievably countercultural. If we live that way, it shows, it demonstrates that we're not of this kingdom. We're of a different kingdom. The Father expects the children to live out what Jesus has been teaching us in the last three chapters. And really, as I thought about it, the most foolish way we could ever hear the Sermon on the Mount is to sit and listen, soaking it in, nodding our head in agreement, and then to leave and to never, ever do it. That would be absurd, wouldn't it? This is the type of kingdom person you need to be. That's right. That's what I need to be like. And then we walk away. And as James says, you're like a person who looked in the mirror and saw his face, turns away, and immediately forgets what he looked like. That's the most foolish and absurd response to the Sermon on the Mount. To never enact it, to never live like it. Next week, we're actually going to hear just how foolish that is, as Pastor Ken is going to preach to us about, it's like building our house on the sand with no foundation. That's how foolish it is to hear this sermon 
to hear God's word and to not do it. We started going through the Sermon on the Mount months ago. Does anybody remember when we started it? I'm cheating. I have it written down so I wouldn't forget. February 7th, the first Sunday in February, we began with Matthew chapter 5 and started talking about the Beatitudes. That was six months ago. I'm sure that all of us now know the content of the Sermon on the Mount better than we did before that. But do we know Christ? Do we know him better as a result? Do we love him more? Do we demonstrate the blessed life of the Beatitudes more and more as time progresses? Simple litmus test, friends. Are we a people who are meek? Are we a people who delight to show mercy to sinners and transgressors? Are we more pure? Are we more peaceable? Are we more like Jesus now? Do we delight in the things that he loves? Do we have an increased desire for holiness, to be different than everyone around us? Not different for different sake, but different for Christ's sake? We can profess to know him all we want. We can do all the mighty deeds we can think of in his name, but do we know God? Are we known by Jesus? Do we delight to do the Father's will? Hard message. I was thinking about how to wrap this up and concrete ways to apply this message, and I had a, a bunch of ones listed down, but I soon realized they were all saying the exact same thing. So I'm leaving you with one application point. Amen. You know, miracles still happen, everybody. <laughs> miracles still happen. What to do with this sermon? Well, I want to suggest this one application which sums up all three of these difficult verses. And here it is. Assess yourself. Assess yourself. Do a self-examination on your own soul. At the beginning of this sermon, I mentioned that this passage won't do its intended work on our souls if we keep thinking about other people and how this applies to them, not us. We each, each and every one of us need to evaluate our own souls. Evaluate or assess yourself. There will be, according to this passage, many people who are self-deceived on the day of judgment. They may be good people, may be really good people. They may be church people. They might even have won awards for their Christian service, that kind of good Christian person. They may never have missed a single religious meeting, a single prayer meeting. They may say all of the right Christian things, look the part, nod their head in approval to all the moral tenets of Christianity, wag their fingers at all the sins and the iniquities shown in the world, say amen at the right part of the sermon. They may be convinced in their own mind that they are in, and Jesus will say to these people, I don't know you. There's no more sobering warning in the scriptures than that. We have to assess ourselves. This is more than a possibility for some. It is a certainty for many. Do you know Christ or do you just know about him? Do you 
love him or do you just love being right? Do we know Christ? Do we delight to do his will? Now, there is good news, friends. You're like, oh, thank you. That's what I need to hear, something uplifting, you know. If you do know Christ, you know it. And I don't want to bank too much on the subjective here, but if you do know him, as in, you have been born again, and you are different than what you used to be, if you are regenerate, which means the Spirit of God has made you new, you know it. If you have put your faith in Jesus alone because you realize that you are under the wrath of God if you do not because of how grievous our rebellion and our sin was, and you put your faith in Jesus and gave up and said, it's all on him because I can't save myself. If you have trusted in the name of Jesus, you don't need to fear being excluded on that day. Amen? To you, I would say, press in to know Christ even more. Philippians 3.10. It speaks of Paul wanting to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, that he may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead, or the resurrection from the dead. To you I say, press on, know Christ more. You will never, even throughout all of eternity in his presence, never exhaust your knowledge of how infinitely unfathomable his goodness is. Isn't that fun to think about? It also will give you a headache, so don't ponder too long. But it's incredible. Press on to know him more. I don't think that Jesus is trying to scare faithful Christians and make them doubt their genuine salvation. <laughs> okay? If you're feeling that way right now, I don't think that's Jesus' intent. I think his intent is to tell all of the people who are on the fence, you either come into my fold or you're out. I think that's the point. Why do I say this? Well, it's because if you are in Christ, if you have been made new, he's not going to let you go, John 6. And if you've been made new, you can't be unmade new or remade old. That doesn't work, okay? If you've been made new, you're new. If you've been given the Spirit of God, he's not taking it from you. It's your seal of your salvation until the day of redemption. That's good news. <laughs> we have certainty of our salvation. But this is absolutely a dire warning to all of the posers and the frauds who come loving to hear Jesus' teaching. He warns them and says, you're either his or you're not. You're either known by Christ or you're not. You're either a citizen of the kingdom of heaven or you're not. Assess yourself today before the final day comes, because on that day, that's the final verdict. And I really believe this passage is in our Bibles, friends, because Jesus loves us too much not to warn us about this possibility. If he didn't love us this much, he wouldn't warn us. No, just, just assume you're in. You will be. Don't worry about it. He'd be lying to us. But Jesus is the truth. And surely, Jesus, who is the judge of all the earth, knows the difference between the frauds and the faithful. So the only question is, which are you?